With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for June 18th, 2020, the Because of Sex edition. I'm David Plotz, a business insider from Washington, D.C., back in the hidey hole at my house. And I'm joined from New Haven, again, now from a place with with, uh, bookshelves and nice prints on the walls, New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School's Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hello. Good morning. And from Manhattan, New York City, fresh off his triumphant book launch, Make sure you get The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency by John Dickerson. Hello, John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, David. A book launch launched on here with all our thousands of, um, really tens of thousands of GabFest fans. Yes, we did. So it was so good doing our live stream with you listeners last week. It wasn't the same as a live show, but we had 19,000 people stream the show, which is like we sold out Madison Square Garden, if you think of it that way. 19,000 people streamed We're just that. Like Bruce Springsteen. I always feel like that comparison. They watched a on Zoom the tip call. Of my tongue. Could Bruce Springsteen <laughs> sell out a 19,000 seat arena for a Zoom call? I don't think so. Yes. The answer is yeah, yes. Yeah, he, he could. could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he could do it reading the phone book, but that's fine. That would be an interesting test. He definitely could do it reading the phone book. That would yeah. definitely happen for sure. Yeah. For sure. Now, the question is how long people would stay on because they would assume that he was going to do more than read the phone book or that he would read it in a particular way. And then after time, they might tire of, of reading the phone books. And then would it be like by the time he got to the B's or would they bail out midway through the A's? A lot of would be wanting to wait till he got to hear him say Wendy because he says Wendy uh-huh. so well. Good point. On today's GabFest, John Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened, rattles Washington, rattles the Trump administration. Then a historic ruling for gay and trans rights at the Supreme Court. We will talk to Chase Strangio, who represented one of the plaintiffs in those historic cases. Then President Trump is holding his rally in Tulsa on Saturday. We will talk about the nature of the campaign in the COVID era, and we'll talk about whether this uh, rally should take place at all and and how the Trump administration is handling the COVID crisis, which is not a crisis to the Trump administration, apparently. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. John Bolton is publishing a book, The Room Where It Happened, which is an account of his rather brief tenure, although what kind of tenure in the Trump administration <laughs> is not brief, his rather brief tenure as national security advisor for Donald Trump. I have not read the book. I don't think that Either of you have read the book, but we have heard lots of vile and pungent details that have been added to the sixth story of this administration. According to Bolton, Trump seems to have asked the Chinese premier Xi Jinping to buy farm products in order that President Trump could win farm states in the 2020 election. He seems to have intervened or tried to intervene to stop legal inquiries against a Turkish bank 
and two Chinese companies. He encouraged Xi Jinping in building concentration camps for Uyghurs. He very much definitely withheld the aid approved by Congress for Ukraine in order to help compel Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, which was the subject around which he was impeached. It is a litany of outrage. It's apparently buried in what's, according to reviewers, quite a terribly written book, but so it goes. Uh, so, Emily, we'll get to sort of the legal controversy about the Bolton book, but what is it that we are learning or what might we learn from this book that was not already evident during impeachment, during all that we've seen of the Trump administration? Is this book, in fact, revelatory? I keep thinking about how many newscasts, how much ink was spilled over whether anyone with firsthand knowledge of Trump trading, you know, investigative material from Ukraine on Biden or Hillary Clinton for money for um, Ukraine. How much ink we spilled over that question. Here was the person who had firsthand knowledge the entire time. There were just so many Republican talking points that revolved around this notion that no one who was in the room could confirm it. Now we have a book called I Was in the Room, to paraphrase. <laughs> it turns out this guy with very senior status knew the answer all along. It, I mean, I just am dumbfounded by that. That's A. B is this uh, line from the book about how obstruction of justice was a way of life for Donald Trump and Bolton's examples of that. But I would like to spend some time on A for a moment. John, do you feel like that ha would have had the political um, repercussions that I imagine in that moment? I don't know. We have seen a number of tests to the duty of those in the president's party to speak out and and they haven't. So and Bolton's assumption was that whatever he had to say wouldn't um, wouldn't have mattered. However, it's his duty to come forward at the time and 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 talk to the uh, impeachment proceedings because the reason it's his duty is he claims at the center of the book that, that uh, the president is a national security threat to the country. I mean, um, he tells ABC, uh, Martha Raddatz, that the president is not competent to carry out the job. And this isn't just, you know, uh, whether he's competent to carry out the turkey pardoning at Thanksgiving. This is in the central most important part of the role, which is to keep everybody safe. And not only that, but he um, is more concerned with himself and his family than the country, and that he is exceedingly pliable to dictators. Um, so that's something you might want to not wait six months uh, or however long it's been to get out. But but I want to home in on your first point, which is the there were senators who could have called Bolton to testify in the moment about the very question that was at issue, and they chose not to. And they knew this was coming. They did not. I mean, one shoe was not going to drop. They knew there was a closet of shoes that was going to drop. Um, and their, the reason they gave was that the House had not followed procedure uh, precisely in the way that they brought the articles of impeachment to the Senate. And so maybe that's possibly true. But is that more important than what Bolton alleges in getting to the bottom of it? Because remember, what's at center here is whether the president has used the powers of his office for himself and not for the country, which is the core of the job, the core of impeachment and what it's about. So I think the senators have a great deal to answer for because everything Bolton says, and I'm shutting up soon, is both revelatory in that uh, some of the things you guys have mentioned, 
But it's also cumulative, which is that there is nothing that he says that we haven't heard repeatedly before. And that essentially attaches to the way the president behaves in public. I mean, 50,000 Elvis fans can't be wrong. You can't have this many people giving the precise same description of the president as being incurious, ill-informed, impulsive. They all give the same response about what it was like to have the president. And so to ignore that is uh, really is just a willful act of, of ignorance. Yeah, it is. It is just a shocking dereliction of duty that we've seen from the Republican establishment. And I count Bolton in there. Bolton gets no no points for me, no credit for me for writing this book and, and coming out with this book months after it could have mattered. He had a chance as a citizen, as a patriot, as someone who believed the president was a danger to the country to stand up and speak to have a John Dean moment in the way that other members of this administration did. I mean, mostly lower level people like Lieutenant Colonel Vindman or or, uh, Fiona Hill. And Bolton chose not to do that. He made it very clear he wouldn't do it. He didn't cooperate. He was not available. So he deserves no credit. And the Republican senators, their names, you know, should be dumped in the in the ash heap of history. The, they it is absolutely appalling that they allowed this. They knew this was there. They knew it was there. And yet they decided to look away. They decided it was more important to look away. And for extremely selfish political means, they looked away or political ends. They looked away. And I hope that what happens is that there is a vast you know, tidal wave of an election that sweeps a whole bunch of them out of office and they realize that they made they made a terrible mistake. I really hope that's what happens, but probably won't. Probably they'll all hold on to their seats and they'll get to sit there and then they'll walk off to seven figure lobbying jobs later. But it's it is it is it's a shameful episode on the part of all parties. Can I just underscore that point about Vinman and the 18 other people or so who risked their careers and risked their public reputation by coming forward in the way Bolton didn't, but that also, as you say, David, laid the predicate for being interested in the fact that there might be more information to to look into to, here. And to add on Vinman, I don't know if you guys saw the story in the paper today. The Vinman is due for a promotion. He has been recommended for a promotion. He has earned a promotion from lieutenant colonel to full colonel. The Army and the Department of Defense is not forwarding that promotion to the White House. They're not forwarding any promotion to the White House because they're afraid that Trump will will wipe out Vindman's promotion, will delete Vindman's promotion. I mean, how fucked up is a country that the president is exercising a vendetta against a person who is a public servant, lieutenant colonel in the Army, an immigrant who is serving the country bravely, who stands up and speaks, and the president is so petty and disgusting that he would go through wipe out his promotion, and that the entire circle, the entire armature of the U.S. military, of the Department of Defense, is kind of focused on, do we send this promotions list to the White House or not? And all these other people's promotions are getting held up for the same reason. It's just, it's despicable. I'm really worked up this morning. Sorry. Emily, you were going to say. I know that's worth being worked up over. I was going to turn to the Democrats for a moment, because I am seeing some... um, idea out there that it's dem- the Democrats in the House fault that Bolton didn't testify, that he just wanted a subpoena, they failed to provide it. And that is just not <laughs> an accurate representation of what happened. What happened was that one of Bolton's deputies went to court proactively to say, I want a court to rule that I have to abide by this subpoena. That suit ended up being dismissed after the Democrats withdrew the subpoena. And the reason the Democrats did that was that they knew that the administration could just run out the clock on them. 
So there has been litigation over Congress's power to subpoena a White House official. It involves Don McGahn, the former White House counsel. It is still in court. The D.C. Circuit, as a full court, has yet to rule on that suit. And so in this alternative universe in which the Democrats gave John Bolton the subpoena that he wanted, but he insisted that he needed final authority from a court in order to speak, he still would not have spoken. His book is out before he would have received permission to give this congressional testimony. And so I just want to make that clear because I feel like that misunderstanding is kind of lingering. It is amazing to me that even the worst lizards, and I would count Bolton among the worst lizards, who go to work for Trump, end up loathing him. Every single person, except the ones whose like inheritance depends on him, essentially ends up alienated from him, thinks he's a horrible person, an idiot. That tells you a lot about that man. And and given my obsession of the last few years on the on how important it is to hire people and and build a team, the number of people that the president, I mean, it's almost the number of people that he that he hired and put in the most senior positions in government, who he then said were total losers that he knew all along. It's just it's I mean, he was the one who hired them. It's just if this is one of the most important parts of the job, he has. I mean, he is, Brookings has looked into this. He has set records for the mismanagement of management of the job. What do you guys make of these stories about um, prosecutions in of companies and a bank in Turkey and China that uh, appear to have, the president appeared to have essentially tried to redirect in order to appease the leader of Turkey and then the leader of China. And this idea that Trump said, to Chi, you know, if you just buy a lot of grain and soybeans, that would really help me out with my reelection chances right now. Essentially saying that his reelection chances uh, deserve priority over American foreign policy, or at least should be shaping it. I mean, are these like the thing about revelations about Donald Trump is that they all confirm what we already know. And yet I did find this kind of shocking, like the foreign government involvement here. I actually think the two are different kinds of categories not neither is excusable it is slightly more excusable to intervene to stop the prosecution of a chinese company or a turkish company to meet some perceived national security goal that will help the united states overall you could imagine a situation in which a president would say you know what yes zte has done some scummy things but it's really important that we have a warm relationship with China and that we b- build partnerships across the technology sector and this and this kind of prosecution will hurt it. So I'm going to I'm going to try to get the Justice Department to slow walk that. I think that's totally different than the president saying you have to do pursue policy and so I can get reelected. Those are those are different cases. I think that's I think I totally agree with that. I guess the only thing I would add is that Bolton in the Wall Street Journal singles out Trump's policy towards China in general. Uh, and then the, he mentions these specifics, but he there a lot of the what the president's supporters have excused from him over the years has been based on the idea that he is, well, he may be breaking all these norms, but boy, he's really got China's number and he's really going to finally put us on the right footing with China. And, and this is there are even a number of Democrats in the national security uh, realm who who like his uh, focus, if not the actual approach. And basically what Biden said, I mean, what Bolton says is there was nothing there. There was no uh, there there. And we've seen subsequent uh, with respect to trusting China on coronavirus that that he was too trusting of the Chinese. So 
this is important not only because China is a major adversary, but also because it's been the excuse for a lot of behavior uh, from the president um, through his presidency. Did you guys read that brilliant Ann Applebaum story about complicity in among the yeah, Republicans? Yeah, we talked about it last week. Yes. And so one of the examples Ann gives, I don't know if you remember this, is she talks about a high up Republican friend of hers who has gone to work for the administration. And this high up friend, you know, says, yes, he's terrible. Yes, he's terrible. But, you know, he's he's really protecting the Uyghurs. And she's using that as an example of like the compromises people make. And now it turns out, of course, he wasn't protecting the Uyghurs at all. No, telling, he was telling she, she, he approved she of concentration camps. To go do con- concentration camps, right. Yeah. Um, Emily, let's wrap this just quickly on the legal question here. So the Trump administration has sued after a fashion. The D- Department of Justice is suing after a fashion to try to stop publication. Obviously, the horse is so far out of the barn. I mean, the horse has given interviews on ABC the horse's book is in possession of every journalist in Washington except me, apparently. Uh, and so what's what's going on there? Does the, is the legal battle worth looking at at all? I think it's for show. John Bolton was under contractual obligation to go through the process that government employees with uh, security clearance go through to publish things after they leave. So you have to do a big check to make sure that you're not revealing classified information. He spent months working on this with someone. They vetted various things. He agreed to all of her requests to change things in the book. Then at the end of that, someone um, was asked to start over again by Bolton's replacement, a political appointee. And this appeared to be an effort just to slow or, um, you know, delay forever the publication of the book. So Bolton's argument in court is, I fulfilled my contractual obligations. There is no classified information in this book. Here, I have all this extensive email correspondence um, showing those things. And the Trump administration is saying, no, no, like, we never signed off. So even if they win that fight, I think all that's really at issue right now is, like, who gets the profits from the book, right? So, like, when the horse is out of the barn like this, a court could say, well, you broke your contract, and so the government is the wrong party, and they get your $2 million book fee. Like, I I mean, I guess that's the remedy. It just all seems really implausible. And I sort of assume what's happening here is that the Justice Department is trying to placate President Trump. I think the goal is to make a value claim about the author, particularly for the Trump base. Who knows Bolton? I mean, Bolton, the the reason it's going to be hard to claim Bolton is a member of the deep state is that he would have had to start his work with the deep state when he was a student under Robert Bork at Yale and then became the Justice Department official tasked with trying to get Bork's nomination through under Reagan because he was worried about the squishes inside the White House. I mean, John Bolton has been at the center of the very... um, uh, kind of center of the very hard movement conservative base, particularly obviously on national security. So he's not like, you know, he's not some Obama holdover. Um, but anyway, what they're trying to do, and I think, again, the message is to the base, which is this is a dishonorable person I, I, because he he tra- trafficked in um, classified information and therefore you should discount what he says. So it's a it's not a, a it's not a just claim. It's it's an acclaim to to basically water down what he's saying by making him seem uh, smarmy. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts, and we're so grateful for your support. There's been a real surge in Slate Plus memberships in the in COVID times, which we really appreciate because, as we've discussed, 
it's a hard being a publisher. It's hard being an independent media publisher as Slate is these days. And we appreciate your support. It helps us do the work that we're doing. It helps Slate do the expansive and excellent journalism that it does every week. So please go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today and get bonus segments like our segment today. We will talk about Chaz or Ch- or Chop, the Capitol Hill uh, organized, organized pro- protest or the Capitol Hill autonomous zone and why it is such an object, a place of fascination for so many people. So go to slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames in the notes that I have here says moms like aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for mother's day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is made possible by PWC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. President Trump will hold his first rally of the pandemic era indoors in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Saturday. He moved it back from Friday because, of course, Friday is Juneteenth, although President Trump surely did not know that when he scheduled it because I doubt he knows what Juneteenth is. There will be 20,000 people in the venue. There will also be up to 40,000 people outside the venue. It's sort of a series of fair-like events outside and musical performances. Uh, I personally think I would rather be indoors in Oklahoma and in June than outdoors in Oklahoma in June because I think it would be super hot. But it is going to be potentially a super spreader event. As we've learned in the past three months about this disease, it spreads indoors. It spreads when there's a lot of singing and chanting and aerosolizing whatever is in people's lungs and being expelled in indoor space in closed spaces. Uh, and people will be close together. They will not be socially distant, and they will probably not be masking because these are people who are fans of President Trump, and President Trump is not a fan of masking. So it comes at a time when the United States government, at least the federal government, has essentially given up fighting the pandemic. We have rising rates of disease in 22 states. We have extremely rapid rise in Oklahoma, for example. Uh, And the flatness of the epidemic nationally is essentially a function of the decline in the Northeast, particularly in New York. Um, but that's masking the fact that it's rising quickly 
elsewhere. Have we given up on COVID-19 and why have we given up? I think the federal government is absent. I mean, it was never effective in marshalling a response, but now it just seems to have receded. I mean, we saw an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from Vice President Mike Pence in which he was essentially declaring victory. Pence claimed that there were 750 COVID deaths a day and that this was a kind of victory because it was fewer than predicted. I think the correct figure might be closer to 800 deaths a day. Whichever it is, that's a lot of people as you is as that number keeps building. And it seems to me like that is the figure that matters. Um, if we can bring the number of those deaths down a lot, like with this new steroid, that could be maybe something that would really be different. But as long as people are dying at high numbers, like it just is staggering that the federal government isn't giving more guidance to the states, isn't making masks, which now prove to be so much more helpful than we knew in the beginning, something that all governors and mayors are feeling like really righteous and supported in asking citizens to wear, asking residents who are asking all of us to wear. So I find that refusal to really like help on that front to just be kind of mind blowing. And I think it's creating all this political division. And then obviously this rally is kind of part of that. If the rally was happening outside, I think it would be much easier to defend, especially given all of the protests of the last month or so, which, you know, we've talked about how public health authorities kind of gave their blessing to those outdoor events. And I think that does mean that like outdoor events, for whatever reason, get to go under the same, um, get to be given the same pass. Like the virus doesn't care if you're outside protesting for Black Lives Matter or outside at a Trump rally. But this is not outside, it's inside. And so I think it's does present a different level of risk based on what we know. And it's kind of amazing that President Trump is asking people to sign a liability waiver as they walk inside to do something that he is kind of dangling out there as this treat to people that's actually like probably dangerous for some of them. Should they be held liable for COVID cases among the attendees? I don't think they should. You don't think they should because people can assume their own risk. They know what the yeah, risks but are. But they should be held liable for all the second degree cases that happen because people well, go to the, the problem. rally. Yeah. yeah the problem right. is not the problem. All these people who are going to the rally, they're totally informed. They've made a, a decision. That's the, the problem with this sense of, of these two conflicting ideas about liberty. There's a idea about liberty, which Republicans embody right now, which is that it's your freedom to do whatever you want, your your bodily autonomy, you can make decisions and take on risks. And that works in some situations. It doesn't work in a situation where you pass on, you unknowingly, uh, inadvertently pass on that risk to all the people you come into contact with. And in that case, you the, like there has to be a sense of liberty, which takes into account the safety of all the people who are one degree of separation from you, two degrees of separation from you. And people are going to the rally refuse to acknowledge that or refuse to take that into account. And the, and this sense of liberty isn't, isn't, uh, it's, it's so liber individual libertarian rather than collectively, what do we all do as a society to give us each maximum chance of, of staying free and happy, pursuing our happiness and having liberty and life and not illness. Which is the, the idea behind the founding. But the, 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 I think one of the, the things that at issue here also is the president has tried to portray any concern about the health of the people attending the indoor rally as 
um, groundless nannyism. You know, he said that that the news media and and uh, is is he said quote trying to COVID shame us on our big rallies. So that suggests that this is totally unfounded and malarkey which is then thoroughly and totally undermined by the fact that they want to have those who are participating indemnify the campaign because they would need to indemnify them if this was just a hoaxy non-event, you know, non-problem. It does seem that um, in the official words that we're getting out about the, the status of the pandemic, you know, there is, as you pointed out early, David, the, the cases are going down in the Northeast, but they are picking up in a troubling way in in some of the states that have reopened and it's the hospitalizations that are up and and dr fauci says that the increase is not simply attributable to the increase in positive tests is not simply attributable to the increase in the number of tests they're giving so the health people are saying one thing and then the, the vice president puts out information and says the cases are dropping and so he's taking the national number and i think anybody who's who's been in this for a while would know that when you when you use national numbers to make the case that they, that um, cases are dropping, you are engaging in something to fool people. I mean, you're not giving a clear picture of things. You can say the national number's dropping, but it's worrisome in these places. But if you only say the first half, you're not in the business of trying to inform people completely. You're in the business of trying to spin them. Why, Emily, do you think that Americans have become, and I think this is not simply Americans in reopened states or Americans in red states. Americans in general are impatient with the lockdown and seem really done with with the severe precautions that we were taking a month ago i mean it's hard it's been costly in terms of people's jobs and people's businesses and their um, mental health and if you don't have a really strong message of solidarity and we're all in this together and this is like you know, a fight we're engaging in and your leaders are effectively letting you off the hook, then like who wants to have the energy for it? Like it's not a fun, pleasant thing to be separated from people and worried all the time about getting too close to them. It's much easier to kind of lull yourself into some feeling like, well, maybe like this new drug will work and maybe people will just stop dying. Um, and some of those things I desperately hope will end up being true. But it just seems like um, the lack of solidarity is what I always come back to with this. Because if you're going to ask people to do something hard, the reasons for it need to be really clear. They have to have a sense of purpose. I, I mean, I, I certainly agree with that. I certainly think there's a lot to that. I also do, like we when we look back at this, the combination of the anti-lockdown protests the push for federal reopening and the mass protests around George Floyd's murder are contributing factors. Like they, yeah. they have made it clear, like, well, lots of people are out in the street. The government wants us to be out. And so, so that, that, that message, that wasn't simply like, there's no more solidarity. It was like, well, actually there are other things to do and we're just going to go out and do them. Yes. As you guys both pointed out, was it last week or two weeks ago, the, the hypocrisy, which, which undermines that collective by making it seem like it's just a political choice whether you participate or not. But just because people are behaving in their political self-interest doesn't mean that the public health officials and the people who are supposed to lead us are get a pass for doing that. And it seems like 
the president and the administration in their response to this particular question of whether or not to hold the rally are replicating two of the problems that have been at the center of this all along. The first is advantaging personal political needs above the public health needs. And then second, not being straight about the numbers. And so that's one of these ways in which everything we're witnessing with respect to this rally is is a part of the larger story that has led to mismanagement of this. And then the one final tiny thing I'd like to say is there's I hate to be the second time conspiracist on this uh, on this podcast, but um, <laughs> one of the reasons conspiracy. Yeah. One of the reasons if I were being truly um, devilish, I would I would I would create a rally that would stir up my opponents, uh, the, the media, liberals, the nanny state and get them as angry as possible about a whole range of issues to elevate the story in the news cycle and get people to, quote unquote, sign up for the rally by email as a um, value um, middle finger to all those nanny state people on the other side of this argument so that I could collect their emails, keep them enthusiastic about my Cell phone numbers. You really want to text them to. Right. Their telephone numbers and keep uh, keep them on the boil for an election that we know is going to be uh, all about negative partisanship, which is you may or may not like Donald Trump, but you really don't like these people on the other side. Um, and so as you guys identified two weeks ago, there's a hypocrisy in those who are saying stay home, but it's OK to march for my cause. That's fuel to the kinds of voters they want to turn out. And so in a way, this could all have been a setup in a sense to not actually have the rally inside. But um, but to create a stir that then it has that organizational benefit. And now I'll take off my tin hat. Ooh, now I wonder if they're going to move it outside at the last minute. Eh, probably not. Uh, I think they've they've so they're so excited to have it inside. They've they're so excited to give the middle finger. I think they'll they'll just do it. I, my question, actually, it's more to you, John, is given what we know of the virus so far, given what we know of. President Trump, President Trump, unless this this Tulsa event turns out to be like a major super spreader event, whereas obviously you can trace back thousands of cases and 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 flares of COVID-19 to the event. President Trump will continue to hold rallies. He'll certainly hold them outside. He's made it clear he's going to hold a convention that will be a largely traditional convention now in Florida, not in North Carolina. What do you think the Democratic presidential strategy should be in response can Joe Biden actually get out and do rallies and do any of this kind of thing without seeming like a hypocrite? I mean, can't he go outside and do social distance rallies? He can, but but and this will be this is going to be one of the tests number 957 of 14 billion different tests of whether we change the way we think about politics because we're in a more serious age. We're always in a serious age, I argue in my book, but nevertheless, we are really in a serious age right now because what you could imagine happening is he has a social distancing rally and it rallies are about enthusiasm and about madness and about chaos. And the rational thing to do is not have them right now based on all of the doctors and epidemiologists, including the ones in the town. We got an amusing federalism thing going on here, by the way. On the one hand, the executive branch is saying, let the governors deal with it, let the states deal with it. And then you've got the local people saying, don't come, but they're kind of not listening to them. But um, anyway, a rally is supposed to look, you know, big and enthusiastic. And a social distance rally wouldn't look that way. And the question is, would people resist the temptation to say, oh, that looks lame? 
which of course it looks lame. You're having to stay six feet apart. It's not a rally, like recognize the change in circumstances. But I would bet that you would not have that reaction. And then and then where are you? Andy Slavitt, a former Obama official who's been vocal and I think often helpful about understanding COVID, tweeted um, four charts yesterday dividing the country into regional um, quadrants. So Northeast, South, West, Midwest, and showing the COVID rates per capita in each part of the country. And it was super instructive. It shows just this huge hit that the Northeast took, this like skyrocketing epidemic, which then has come down really, really dramatically. And then it shows far lower levels of infection in the other three parts of the country, but a rise recently. This is the like alarming rise in the South and in the West. And Looking at it, I mean, you could see why it was really hard for people in um, those parts of the country to feel like all of the um, shutdown was necessary because they just were never hit at the same level. And then you see this sort of worry, this uptick. And I feel like this different regional experience is so important for both the resentment that people have felt about you know, in particular, I think the like New York centric coverage of the epidemic just made people who weren't having that experience feel like that is really far away and not what is happening here. And like, why am I suffering economically because of this? And then you see this uptick now, which the Northeast is not experiencing. And so part of why people in the place like in where I live are feeling more relaxed are based on the numbers. But again, it's like if you lived elsewhere and everyone is scolding you for your rising numbers, it just all feels like a kind of setup of resentment and misunderstanding. That is such a great point, Emily. It's such a such a smart point. And I I had the same question, which was, the whole country kind of went into lockdown around the same time and following the anxiety about New York in the sense like, well, this is going to this is going to help us all. And then somebody living in Arizona or Oklahoma or Texas to realize like, well, maybe we didn't help ourselves. And now we've also lost the will. There is no more will to do such strict measures anymore. Is it, It's a real conundrum and a problem for people in texas and florida and arizona and florida and and that may in turn you know bounce back to new york one day or bounce back to california or new jersey or whatever it is that is that is having a decline so it's it's well, a very bad dynamic and which is why the public information role is so important to say We've got a lockdown to figure out what the scope of this thing is. We might be able to open in different stages. We've got to really lend a hand to the Northeast because they're taking it hard. But we do that because it might come blow back on us so that you create a sense of information so that people don't immediately think, oh, we're getting screwed to save those New Yorkers, because that, as Emily said, now undermines the position that everybody's in. There was a huge victory for gay and trans rights and for all Americans at the Supreme Court this week. Uh, we are joined by Chase Strangio, who is a deputy or is the deputy director for trans justice at the ACLU. He was also on the Amy Stevens legal defense team. Amy Stevens was one of the plaintiffs in the cases before the Supreme Court. Chase, welcome to the GabFest. Does this case mean that no employer can now discriminate against gay or transgender employees? Yeah, you know, so first, thanks for having me. And the the Supreme Court was absolutely 
unequivocally clear that Title VII, which is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination because of sex, includes discrimination against LGBTQ employees, which means that every employer subject to Title VII, which is every employer with more than 15 employees in the entire United States, is now prohibited from discriminating against LGBTQ workers, which is just an absolutely stunning clarification of the law um, and much needed protections for people, particularly in states that don't have explicit protections for the LGBTQ community. So Chase, I read these opinions with great interest. I'd written a big piece a few months ago about textualism, um, particularly focusing on Justice Gorsuch, who's the author of the majority opinion. And this fight between the majority and the dissents is all about textualism, right? So we're talking about um, basically three words in Title VII because of sex. And then this question of whether those words encompass discrimination against LGBTQ people. Alito has this raging dissent about why um, Gorsuch's answer yes to that question is a kind of betrayal of what um, elite everyone's like competing for the mantle of Justice Scalia here, <laughs> like the sort yeah. of first or most important textualist. But Justice Gorsuch is saying essentially that you can't really think about why employers fire trans people or gay and lesbian people without thinking about their biological sex. So uh, in my understanding is Gorsuch isn't expanding the definition of sex beyond biology. He's just saying that it's inherent to people's um, reasons for discrimination in these cases. And I imagine that you found that convincing. I wonder um, what you made of Justice Kavanaugh's sort of secondary dissent, which to me was like the it was less apoplectic, but more persuasive legally because he was basically accusing Gorsuch of this incredibly literal interpretation, which was not at all what Congress intended or was thinking about in 1964. Um, so you're, you're the lawyer, the real lawyer in this conversation. I know you've thought a ton about this. Um, what did you think of those conceptions of Title VII and this phrase, because of sex? Yeah, so I, you know, we briefed this case for Justice Gorsuch. Um, you know, it was, we needed five votes. He was our guy um, because, you know, from our perspective, it was a very straightforward textual case. Um, and, and actually the words of the statute are incredibly important beyond just those three because it's because of such individual sex. And so the such individual also plays a really critical role here. And I think just one clarifying point that's important is that Justice Gorsuch sort of says at the outset, you know, we don't need to resolve the party's dispute over sort of what are the contours of sex because the workers, uh, those of us representing the employees, um, you know, essentially said it doesn't matter. So even assuming arguendo. So even assuming just for the purposes of argument that, that the employers are right, that sex means only sort of one's biological characteristics at birth, we still win. And and Justice Gorsuch, you know, sort of takes that and adopts what I at least like to think of as the precise reasoning of our briefs, which is to say that, you know, it you could say the ordinary meaning, you could say the plain meaning, you could say the literal meaning, but whatever meaning of sex you adopt, it is but for an individual sex that you take adverse action against them 
for being LGBTQ. And the examples are, I think, are really helpful. So if you have, you know, a male employee um, and a female employee, and both of those people have husbands, but you only fire the male employee for having a husband, then it is literally or ordinarily or whatever you want to think of as sex because of the employee's sex, because of such individual sex that they were fired. And the same would be true for a transgender worker. So for me, for example, I was assigned female at birth, but I have a male gender identity. If my employer called me and uh, another male employee into the office, let's say of HR and said, okay, you know, you're both men at the office. Which of you was assigned female at birth? Which of you was assigned male? And then they said, I'm going to fire you, Chase, because you were assigned female at birth or because, you know, maybe they would say it as because your biological sex is female or because whatever they think of, that's still because of sex. And I think you have Kavanaugh trying to draw this distinction between, you know, the literal and the ordinary meaning. You have Alito, uh, you know, essentially just listing off dictionary definitions to to say, you know, it couldn't possibly mean this. But I think Gorsuch does a really good job of saying those are just other ways of saying that this wasn't the intended application of the law. And the intended application of the law is antithetical to textualism. It is, you know, really interesting to see the competing Scalia quotes within the majority and the dissents. Um, But at the end of the day, I think the, you know, separate and apart from, you know, the judicial philosophy and the secondary sources cited, the case law on Title VII is incredibly clear that the circumstances in which Title VII has been applied to prohibit discrimination because of sex all were not anticipated by Congress in 1964. And so at the end of the day, that's what controls. And and Gorsuch systematically walks through those examples. Yeah. Can I ask just a super small hypothetical that occurred to me when I heard that Gorsuch example of the two employees, one a woman, one a man, each of them is married to a man. And I just watched a high maintenance episode about asexuality. Like, is someone who is asexual covered by this in the same way? Well, like, could you yeah. could you be discriminated against for being asexual, which wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with what your object of attraction is? Yeah, and I think that there's there there are a few questions that that came up in in um, argument two. If you were sort of, uh, you know, an employer had say a form that said, "Are you bisexual?" and then fired you if you were bisexual, even though you know it, it may mean that they wouldn't have to know your sex to fire you as such. I think one of the things that's also true about this opinion is that it doesn't undermine any of the sex stereotyping jurisprudence. So Title VII already prohibits any discrimination because of sex that is based on expectations of how people should perform their sex. And so you know, and there is language in there just about sexual orientation per se that Gorsuch includes, not just reference to gay employees. Um, and I think that's important because there's nothing about the decision that abrogates Price Waterhouse, which is the sex stereotyping case from the Supreme Court. And so I think it's incredibly clear that if you fire someone for being asexual, let's say, or being bisexual, that's b- based on expectations that they're not performing their sex correctly. A, a correctly performing man would be exclusively and actively attracted only to women. Thank you. That's Chase, so interesting. Were you, so you were you were pitching uh, for Gorsuch. Were you still surprised in the end? Or, I mean, did you think 
this is a good argument, but it still might not work? Or was it you thought there was a pretty good chance? Uh, As the months dragged on, I lost a lot of hope. And not necessarily because the time was a reflection of anything. Just the more that I thought about the court and the world, I just became more and more despairing. Um, and, and then the other reason is because, you know, as it gets closer and closer to the end of the term, those of us who are watching the court tend to sort of map out the statistics. And generally, each justice writes one opinion from each sitting. So you can look at a month and see who has not written an opinion. And so a few weeks ago, Gorsuch had an October opinion. And I was devastated. I, I You know, I was like, oh, no. Oh, you thought that was it for him? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did we not have Gorsuch? And then, you know, then we're like, well, maybe Gorsuch was in the majority but didn't write it. Does this mean we've completely lost? It doesn't necessarily mean that. And I think, you know, when you're in it, when you're writing the briefs, you know, or at least for me, I, every sentence was, you know, so painstaking and so strategic. And in the moment of crafting the legal arguments last summer, I was like, you know, we are absolutely going to win. We, this is, we are so right on the law. And, you know, and then you get the other side's brief and then you're like, oh gosh, maybe not. And then you reply and you're like, oh no, no, we're going to win. And and I thought the arguments were really hard to read. So it, I was actually quite shocked that we won at all. I was especially shocked that we won with such clarity. Um, I, you know, I thought there was going to be a lot of room for them to possibly, you know, maybe adopt some sex stereotyping analysis that you would have that would impose an incredible burden on an employee to have to prove actively stereotyping by the employer. I thought that was one possibility to have this sweeping, unequivocal per se win. Um, I was not expecting that. And I will say that no part of me was expecting Chief Justice Roberts to sign on to the majority. Um, you know, he is not you know, necessarily the textualist among the conservatives. Um, I wasn't convinced we really had a shot at him. So to have this six three clear opinion uh, is 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 really something that I was not prepared for. I almost forgot what it felt like to incorporate feelings of joy and happiness <laughs> into a moment <laughs> into your legal career into my yes. <laughs> I mean, I do want to bask in the glow for a a moment because it's just such an important victory. And I also feel like since I was um, deep into looking at Justice Gorsuch on these questions, like in to me, he passed a really important test of intellectual coherence. Now I'm going to say that it's possible that on other issues, the country is going to pay for it later. In that, as you know, there's some language in the majority opinion about um, sticking to the text in this very literal manner. And there are other texts in American law um, and in the Constitution in which sticking in a very literal or wooden way to the text does not get different kinds of litigants where they want to go. So, you know, that's going to be one to watch. However, I also feel like in the sort of larger picture of the Supreme Court, like for liberals, liberals need to take their victories where they can get them right now. And I'm not convinced that, you know, if this opinion had gone in some other way, we would be seeing the conservatives on the court take into account the Constitution or a law's purpose in a way that like helps other goals, right? Like, I don't think that that like there's some sort of necessary consistency or one on one trade offs there. Yes. I mean, had we lost on the ground that they didn't stick to their principles and look to legislative intent, there's no universe in which that would be applied generally, you know, for the benefit of progressive outcomes. So I I think absolutely that's correct. I wanted to ask you about 
the part of Alito's opinions where he starts listing implications for other kinds of cases. He's like done a lot of legal research mm-hmm. for future litigants. And I mean, some of it's kind of obvious, but I wonder what you think about this. So some of the um, categories Alito is concerned about have to do with churches or religious schools that are employing people. Um, there has been up to now what's called the ministerial exception, which is allows effectively a church or a religious institution to discriminate for a minister. But it's not at all clear whether that, for example, includes like every second grade teacher at a Catholic school. Are those people now protected? And then there are questions about dress codes that specify gender in the workplace, about access to bathrooms for transgender students, which is an issue that you've litigated a lot, uh, and and just a, a other array of um, kind of cases to come. And I wonder what you think about um, that picture that Alito was painting. Yeah, no, I you know I you sort of love those dissents um, that they that they map out all the ways you're now going to win your future cases. Scalia definitely did that. In, in Lawrence v. Texas, and you know he he go, he couldn't help himself, and and then we would often cite to his his dissent and saying, look, "Well, look, it, this, it compels this result," um, and and so I think yeah, there's a few buckets of things that Ali, that Alito points to, and that and that Gorsuch sort of explains why they're they're left open for future cases. Um, there's the sort of religious employer religious exemption. Yeah, Title VII already has a religious exemption. And I think the thing that, that Gorsuch, you know, does make clear is that there's no reason why discrimination against LGBTQ people should have a different standard than other forms of discrimination. And and that part of the opinion, I think, would apply to, say, the ministerial exception. You know, there's already, you know... Uh, the congressionally created exemption that the courts have interpreted increasingly broadly. And and I think that future cases are going to contend with the scope of that exemption. Um, The other reality is that there are a lot of future cases that are going to contend with the questions about the constitutional limits of generally applicable laws of non-discrimination. This court has an incredible amount of deference for uh, religion and, and including, you know, religious beliefs that may be used to discriminate against others. And so I think the question about the First Amendment free exercise aspects of uh, religious protection and non-discrimination laws are going to continue to come before the court, um, but they just weren't before the court here. And so we're going to have to continue to fight those out in, in future cases. Um, when it comes to applications of this decision to other federal statutes that prohibit discrimination because of sex or on the basis of sex. You know, I think that the courts have been incredibly clear over decades that, you know, you apply Supreme Court jurisprudence on Title VII to interpret Title IX, which is the prohibition on sex discrimination in education. The Affordable Care Act's non-discrimination provisions incorporate the Title IX standards. So I think as to all federal statutory protections based on sex, that this is going to have largely dispositive implications. I think when it comes to questions of the application to single-sex you know, rules or spaces, you know, dress codes, athletics, locker rooms, restrooms, those are going to be the next set of cases. There's many of them that are already fully briefed and argued before appellate courts that are going to have supplemental briefing on um, the impact of Bostock. And then we're going to see how the courts decide the question. Gorsuch made clear that, you know, this case is not resolving that 
question, um, which is exactly what we said in our briefing. Um, but what he does do is he sets up a framework, which was the framework we pushed for in our brief, which is that when you have a sex-based line, it is inherently because of sex. And then the question is, does it discriminate? Does it differentiate with harm to a protected individual? And I think under that standard, we should win all of the cases on behalf of trans individuals who are, you know, barred from spaces that align with their gender identity, whether that's restrooms or sports or dress codes. Those are going to be the future cases. And I wouldn't be surprised if we win many of those in the lower courts. And then the question will be, uh, when will the Supreme Court take it up? Um, If I had to guess, I think they're going to focus on the religious liberty questions first. They already are in the next term. So, you know, I think that's where we can see efforts to really chip away at the breadth of this decision. Uh, But I think overall, you know, the limitations in the majority opinion are exactly the ones that we would want in a case like this, which is we're deciding the question before us and we will contend with those other questions another day. One quick note about, you know, sex-specific dress codes. I think this is an area where there is no universe in which I could ever understand how sex-specific dress codes survive Price Waterhouse. I mean, Price Waterhouse essentially says you can't discriminate based on you know stereotypes about how men and women should look and act and behave, and yet we still have courts saying that that you know employers can enforce skirts only dress codes for women. Um, that's just an example of how you can have a very clear Supreme Court decision, and yet the lower courts will reverse engineer an outcome to maintain the norms that, you know, they, they seek to uphold. Chase, I don't want to let you go without looking at the broader context of trans life in America, because it's been, I think, just a really uh, contentious and probably terrible period for trans Americans because of what the Trump administration has been doing over the past several years. I just would love your thoughts on what it feels like to have this decision uh, the same week as the the March for Black Trans Lives, uh, the same week that the HHS comes out with this this terrible <laughs> rule, which which would discriminate against trans people in in terms of healthcare. So so, what does it feel like as a as a trans person to have this this swirl of change and and these attacks, and yet this this victory, which is so profound. Yeah, I, mean, I think for me, you know, as a trans person, I, you know, it feels like the culmination of so much work that really was started, you know, at Stonewall and before led by black and brown, you know, trans women. And, and you can see that, you know, over the last 50 plus years, the people who have experienced the brunt of the backlash to progress for the LGBTQ community have been black trans women who experience devastating rates of physical violence, murder, state violence, criminalization. And and so the rea- you know, there's the realities that even under the Obama administration, when we were seeing positive legal changes, we knew that the material conditions for so many people in our community were not improving and that there's so much work to do that comes through power building and base building. And so I, you know, I think for me, the last three and a half years of the Trump administration have been this relentless assault from the government on top of all of the ways in which people are experiencing these concrete material harms that are, you know, were then exacerbated by COVID and the health disparities and the re- the people's loss of jobs. Um, and, and so there was this despair. And then the 
mobilization that started to happen over the past few weeks and the fact that 15,000 people or more showed up in Brooklyn for Black Trans Lives was this moment of absolute hope and transformation for me and so many other people. And so when it came to Monday morning waiting for opinions, I was sort of of this view that we we, we are already moving in the right direction. 15,000 people showed up and I'm ready to take on whatever happens from this court and then to get this incredibly positive ruling, which is completely connected to that mobilization because you can have a proper textual reading of the law, but they're going to reverse engineer a decision against you if they aren't understanding your basic humanity in some way. And so the ways in which people have really put their lives on the line to change the norms, to change the public discourse, to make people see and feel the fact of our existence, you know, I I think really does give me a tremendous amount of hope. And then practically speaking, the decision, you know, essentially, uh, you know, undermines completely the enforceability of the HHS rule and many of the other anti-trans administrative actions of, of, of the Trump administration. So you have, you know, this material set of changes, this, you know, normative statement from the Supreme Court, and then the reality that there is this incredible base building and mobilization that signal that we we have the potential to carry things through uh, coming, you know, in the coming years in a completely transformative and new way. Chase Strangio is an attorney with the ACLU. He was also on the team that represented Amy Stevens, one of the plaintiffs in the Supreme Court cases decided this week. Thanks for joining us, Chase. Thank you so much. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you are having a 20,000 seat rally in your home, John Dickerson, and you want to address the crowd with some cocktail chattery advice, what are you going to be chattering about to them? Well, uh, mine is just on a little progress. Um, You know, often when we get distracted by the press of events, we usually find out that some horrible thing is happening that nobody's paying attention to. But this seems like good news, which is uh, the Senate passed um, a bill fully funding the Land and Water Conservation Fund and also um, appropriating um, basically steady funds to deal with the backlog of of maintenance at um, public lands. And the reason this is important, as it was explained to me, months ago when I was trying to think about doing a part uh, a piece on it is that so many national lands are in such disrepair that people can't go visit them. And national parks are not only, you know, a relatively low cost way for people to go have vacations um, better even now when we can't be inside. Um, but they also employ lots of people associated with keeping up the lands and taking entrance fees and all that kind of stuff. And what basically happened is the way they were budgeted is the money that went to keeping up the lands always just got picked off in the budgeting process. And so lots and lots of maintenance had to be deferred and places had to close. So this is now past the Senate. Why is this important? Well, first of all, it passed 7325, which is, uh, you know, surprising in this day of partisanship. But more important, it's basically passed. All the Democrats voted for it, but some of the Republicans who voted for it include Cory Gardner of Colorado and Steve Daines of Montana, both of whom are in races this cycle. Gardner in particular is in a tough race. And you could imagine Chuck Schumer and the Democrats blocking this so that Cory Gardner wouldn't get something, you know, beneficial to vote on because Chuck Schumer wants to diminish the number of Republicans in the Senate. And he'd like John Hickenlooper or whoever ends up, you know, running in the Democratic race in Colorado to win. 
So anyway, it was a small triumph. It has to uh, go through the House. But at least um, there was progress while so many other things are uh, full of woe. A tiny, tiny tendril of bipartisan cooperation. (laughs) Yeah. Emily, what are you going to chat about? My chat this week is about the firing of an analyst named David Shore from Civis Analytics, which is, I think, a Democratic polling firm. And this firing troubled me. It's sort of one of I'm usually someone who prefers to think that, like, concern about political correctness is overblown. But this firing really got to me in this moment. So David Shore tweeted out some research by an academic named Omar Wasau. And Wasau's research is about the difference in the political effect of peaceful protests in the 60s versus protests that included some looting. And Wasau's finding is that the peaceful protests increased support for civil rights among um, Democratic voters, but that protests that involved some looting or violence had the effect of having white people think like they were more committed to the social order. And so they were not helpful for the civil rights cause. So Shore tweeted this out. He used the phrase race riots, which is not probably a great phrase to use anymore. But he was basically just sharing the work of this black academic. And there was criticism of his tweets on Twitter, a kind of set of a pushback and a lot of um accusations against him. And then he was fired for his job for tweeting out this accurate research. And it just feels to me like there is a lot of um, just like scapegoating going on right now that there are so many legitimate concerns about systemic racism and the structures we live in and incredibly important attention to all those things. And then there are these moments where someone just like especially on social media, becomes the subject of a mob coming after them. And there isn't enough just like kind of reasonable, rational sticking up for people in those moments. I mean, David Shores ended up getting attention. I know about this because Jonathan Chait wrote about this firing in um, New York Magazine. And Chris Hayes has also tweeted about it. So I'm hardly the first person to express concern. But I just feel like we need to watch this moment to make sure that people aren't just getting like chewed up and spit out in a kind of purity test. Like we need to make sure there's a room for expressing lots of points of view and not just being like incredibly um, righteous and dogmatic about what is okay to say and not to say. So anyway, I hope David Shore lands on his feet. What I didn't understand about that, and I, I, glanced at the chait column and glanced at the tweets and so this is from a position of deep ignorance is the trouble it do this people have the same trouble with omar wasau's research is like he is he a persona non grata is it i don't think i didn't so. understand it was the, whether it's the research that was the problem or the the way in which shore represented it or the particular phrase i just it was it was all it was very muddy to me Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Omar Wasau is not like fired and I don't think he's been, quote, canceled. Um, And I don't think Shore necessarily like used the most felicitous phrasing for this. But I think this was really about his tweets. I mean, then there were accusations that Shore had somehow bullied and harassed people. But as far as I could tell, that was just like about the fact that the Chait column was criticizing the critics of Shore. And Shore is bound by a non-disclosure agreement. So Chait said he hadn't talked to Shore. And you just feel like there's this way in which these things start to 
mount with these accusations and counter accusations. And that sometimes just defending and not even defending yourself, having someone else defend you can be like um, used against you. Anyway, I'm I'm not really sure of the answer to your question, but I just feel like we should all just kind of take a deep breath right now and try to be kind of charitable in how we think about other people's actions. My chatter is uh, about the great but doomed cause of D.C. statehood. I live in Washington. I'm a native Washingtonian. uh, And House Democrats will vote next week to make the District of Columbia a state. This is the first time they voted on that in about 25 years. They had a a vote on this in the 90s at some point. It's a righteous cause. It's a righteous cause. It is super outrageous that 705,000 of us Washingtonians live within the national borders of the country. We pay taxes. We serve the government. We serve in the military. And yet we lack representation in Congress. It is also a hopeless cause because as long as Republicans hold any power and they hold a lot, uh, there is no chance they will permit D.C. statehood, which would give Democrats two certain Democratic Senate seats and a House seats. And I just want to stand up. I do. I think there's a there's a perfectly reasonable solution to this. And the one that Republicans probably would accept in in the right circumstances, which is retrocession. D.C., the diamond that is Washington, D.C., was carved out of Maryland and Virginia back in the late 18th century. And the Virginia part of it was retroceded back to Virginia in the 19th century. And so that's now Arlington County. Those of you who know Washington, it's Arlington County. It's this very rich county that is the, if you look at what the diamond of Washington, if it were full, would be. It's the Virginia side of the that diamond. And the rest of it was pulled out of Maryland. Retrocession would basically say the city, except for some narrowly drawn federal areas, is now part of Maryland. Maryland's population would grow by 705,000. They would gain a congressional district because of it. Uh, Washingtonians wouldn't then get a vote for Congress. They would get to vote for Senate. They'd vote for Maryland senators. They get to vote for governor. They'd vote for state legislators. The U.S. would still have 50 states. The Senate balance wouldn't change because Maryland selects Democratic senators and will uh, for the immediate future. And retrocession is not sexy. It's not a sexy solution. Um, It would weaken the power of D.C.'s homegrown elected officials, who I think the mayor of Washington probably would like to be the governor of Washington. It would be a more fun job. It would dilute D.C. It would a lot of proud Washingtonians would feel they would feel shame at becoming Marylanders. But it would end the basic injustice and would make Washingtonians full American citizens. And it's a it's an attainable goal. So I would like us to focus on that rather than statehood, which is a, which is a mirage. There are great listener chatters again this week. Please tweet them to us at Slate Gabfest. The one I loved came from D Holstein at the pop house. D Holstein notes something that uh, I'd heard about for my kids and probably you guys have heard about, which is this fact, this phenomenon of K-pop fans. So K-pop fans are super well-organized uh, these are fans of Korean pop music, and they're global. They're they're not all Korean. They're not all American. And they these tw- they have hugely organized Twitter and and Instagram accounts, and they are organizing to support the protests. And they are organizing to support the Black Lives Matter protests to harass people who are doing. And I mean, the harassment is is not always good, but to harass like White Lives Matter hashtags and just generally cause mischief towards people who 
are opposing Black Lives Matter and to putting the word out about good causes around Black Lives Matter. And it's great. There's a nice story in The Atlantic about it. And uh, it's it's a cool way in which something which seems trivial can be turned towards a, an admirable political end. I just have to break in here with the newsflash to say that the Supreme Court just ruled five to four Chief Justice Roberts and the four liberals that the Trump administration illegally rescinded DACA. Oh, wow. Big, an <laughs> unexpected deal. Wow. wow. Oh, my God. Can you imagine what the conservative conversation is going to be like in this election about judges? And we didn't really talk about that in the show. Yeah, uh, right. But Gorsuch, but Roberts, but control of the Supreme Court, except... Apparently not. Um, anyway, we don't have time to fully digest this opinion, but that is a pretty momentous event. Wow. I was talking about K-pop. That's the show for today. The Gaffes is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, there's big news. We've just contemplated trying to jam in a DACA topic, but we haven't we haven't read the decision yet. We're not ready yet. So we're going to do the topic we planned, which is to talk about the Capitol Hill. And now you get your choice of how you're going to end it. Autonomous zone or organized protest. In either case, it is the area of several square blocks in downtown Seattle around an abandoned police precinct station abandoned or, or with a precinct station the police have withdrawn from uh in which a kind of uh new community a police free community has grown up in the past couple of weeks um there's a politico writer who described it as by turns like a commune an anarcho-syndicalist and small l libertarian dream a 60s style teach-in a street fair and street market a camp out and weekend party a poetry slam and pilgrimage a school service day, a mass healing circle, a humbler urban version of Burning Man, and of course, a protest rally. So it has just attracted an immense amount of media attention. Every single, I check this, every single publication I read regularly, literally every single one has had big stories about Chaz Chop. Fox has covered it like it is in, uh, like it's a civil war in the United States. There was one, um, Chiron I saw where they had a reporter who was reporting from the U.S. Chaz border. Yeah. Why, Emily, is there this fascination with this? I mean, I think there are a bunch of things here. So first of all, these kinds of ongoing rollicking protests slash happenings are just like fun, right? There's a madness to them. I mean, it's like these questions of like, okay, the police are gone and we've taken over the precinct station. Now what happens? And how long does the city let us stay? And can we show that we can peacefully exist here and take care of everyone's um, food and medical needs and succeed in our anarchical um, autonomy? Or inevitably, is human nature going to fail in some way that will then discredit the entire enterprise? And then I think the other kind of maybe interesting political part of this is that at least at moments of this, there have been people with guns who were um, protecting the borders of this zone. And so then for liberals who might be inclined to say like, oh, isn't this sweet and lovely and like 
good or at least like who cares then you have to ask yourself like why do you think these people with guns are fine when you get worried about um people whose politics you disagree with when they have guns in city centers or other places, when they take over federal or state property like um, the Bundy group did in Oregon. And so there are these, like, questions of, you know, dissonance in these different settings. Um, What do we make of them? Does it all depend on the identity of the group and whether you agree with their goals and think they're essentially harmless? Or are there more consistent principles to be applied here? And, like, What's the end result? I mean, Seattle actually has a really interesting history, I read in preparing for this segment, of having these cultural centers and, like, beloved institutions that took place because people took over a government building. And this looks like the next in a series, but it's a six-block radius downtown. That seems really big. And so you imagine that, like, down the line, the question is going to be basically, like, how do we hand over the precinct station to you so you can turn it into, like, a learning center and a memorial to Black Lives Matter, but we don't want to give you six whole blocks so that you, like, live there forever with your ice cream trucks, especially when the weather gets bad. You know, Emily, it's funny you brought up the Bundy thing, because when when the Bundys um, and their armed supporters were uh, were in their standoff, there were articles at the time that said, what do you think would happen if you had black people with guns you know, uh, defying, basically defying local officials? And the argument and the answer was they'd all be shot. Uh, so, I mean, there were de- the coverage of the Bundys is is not unlike the coverage that Fox has been um, covering of Chop. Although I must say, as soon as I say that, I've only read about the Fox coverage. I haven't actually seen it. But there it's is there is a disproportion. I watched a little bit of it. But the, in terms of the focus that that David, you're talking about, the Bundys got similar kind of focus. Um, now, yeah, and you could argue the Chop is a lot more important and and interesting than the Bundys. Gabfest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a Slate Plus member today. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.